of the Lord this morning, and I trust you came prepared, amen, with your hearts ready to give the Lord some glory this morning, amen. Sing this song with me, oh Lord, you're beautiful, your face is all I see, amen. Oh Lord, you're Yeah. 
precious than silver. Sing it with me now. Lord, you are more precious than silver. And Lord, you are more costly than gold. And Lord, you are.
Let's sing the song together. Blessed assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. For taste of glory divine. So God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my
Sister Rachel, they're not with us. They're in Virginia at this time. If you can remember them in prayer. Brother Keith Buchanan is working today, not able to make it. If you'd remember him in prayer. Amen. I have a prayer request uh, for Brother John and Sister Jennifer Cockman to remember them in prayer. And we also want to remember the Drum family. Amen. At this time, the loss of Sister Greg, amen, I know their time of sorrow, amen, but we know, amen, we have a peace in knowing where Sister Greg is, amen, we just want to lift them up in prayer during this time, amen. Brother Jeremy Clayville, would you come forward for us, brother, and take the needs to the Lord, amen. Do you have unspoken prayer requests or uplifted hands, amen. God sees the need on your heart, friend, amen. We raise our hands, we have secret things that we deal with, amen. Sometimes God is working on those. It takes time, amen. But we want to let it go in Jesus' name. Brother Jeremy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it's with thankfulness in our hearts, Lord, we are able to gather together once again, Lord, to worship you, Lord, to hear from you. Father, we come to you, Lord, not uh, anything of our own accord, Lord, but, Father, by the sacrifice that you made at Calvary, Lord. Lord, we lay these needs down at your altar, Father, and just ask, God, that you would be mindful of them, Lord. Father, we ask that you would just give healing to the sick, Lord, provide for those in need, Lord. Give comfort, Lord, to those that are sorrowing at this time. Father, we... Come with expectation in our heart, Lord, that you will meet us here, Lord. Because you said that where two or three are gathered, Lord, that you would be there in their midst, Father. So we have confidence, Lord, that you're here with us. So we lay aside, Lord, just the the troubles of the week and the cares of life, Father. We want to focus on you this morning and worship you. Father, we want to give you all of our attention, our praise, our thought. Lord, we want to just pour our hearts out to you, Lord, to tell you how much we love you and appreciate you. Lord God, I ask that you would come now, have preeminence, Lord, in this service, Father. We lift you up, Lord, and ask that you be, Lord, just take the the center stage, Lord, of everything that's done and said, Lord. Father, as your, uh, your servant has prepared 
We ask, God, that he would be clay in your hands, Lord. Father, that you would speak through him, Lord, to each need, Father. I'm thankful, God, that you are not overwhelmed by the needs of uh, so many, Lord. But, God, you have each thing in your hand, Father. And we give you thanks, O God, and just look forward to hearing from you this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have your seats. Brother Matt has a special for us at this time. As he's making ready, we're going to sing that song together. When I look in your holiness. When I look into your holiness. And when I gaze into your loveliness. When all things that surround me come shadow. Of you. And when I found the joy of reaching your heart, and when my will becomes enthroned in your love, when all things that surround become shadows. Oh uh-huh. 
to our feet. It's time for our deacons to make their way forward and take up our morning offering. Feel free to give as unto the Lord. Amen, friends. Brother David, would you lead us in prayer? sing this song together. His strength is perfect. Kiev. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But sometimes I wonder what He can do. Yeah. 
power that He holds when we truly see how deep our weakness goes. No strength it must comes to an end, and he hears our humble cry, and proves again, his strength is perfect, when our strength is gone, thank you Jesus. Carry us when we cannot carry on. Raised in His power, the weak become strong. His strength is... Oh, let's sing it again now. Let's just worship Him this morning, saints. Bring it out now together. His strength is perfect. His strength is perfect. When our strength is gone. And He'll carry Father, we sing what is true this morning, that our strength is gone, that, Lord, our ability to save ourselves, our, our ability to change ourselves, Lord, we are so limited, and we know that. But, Father, your strength is perfect, and you always know when to move, and you always know what to say, Lord. And I pray today that you would just come among us in the volume of the book and speak to our hearts, Lord. Take control of every spirit. Lord, minister to those as only the Holy Spirit can. And, Lord, you would be the teacher and the comforter. And you would just open the book to us, Lord, and make the word real, make it alive. Father, we believe this is a living word. And we ask now that you would just minister to those who are sick especially. We thank you, Lord, for answered prayer. We thank you, Lord, for the great miracles that you do among us. Father, we pray now today that you would forgive us of anything that may be contrary to the moving of the Holy Spirit. Have your way, we pray. We ask all these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. And all the brides said, you may be seated this morning. God bless you. Thank you, musicians. That's, we appreciate you being here today. And we welcome all of you to the house of the Lord today. It's certainly good to have everybody here and uh, everyone uh, with us today. And may God bless you. Great to have the Menards here today. And uh, Stephen and Emily are here uh, to take a temporary post in Winston-Salem, right? 
and a nursing uh, post. And um, Stephen comes from a great family in uh, Phoenix. And uh, Brother Andy, Sister Becky's uh, son, we've known them for many, many years. And uh, Emily, Emily, and you need to pray for Emily, she is the brother of Jeremy and Chris Clayville. So, uh, sister, did I say brother? You need to pray for her and me. Uh, but she is the sister of both of those guys, so we appreciate uh, them being with us uh, temporarily. Good to have you here today. That's how we welcome everybody. We like to make everybody feel bad, and uh, but good to have you with us today. Brother Aaron uh, Dengamaza is not here today. He's ministering to uh, a group in Scotland, and uh, then uh, by the time with their time difference, by the time that that service ends, uh, it, it would be too late for them to make the trip here today. So they're streaming today, and we miss them. But um, Brother Aaron is well-known in lots of different places in the world, and uh, we uh, miss them today. The Jacksons, Some of the Jacksons are away today. Some of them are here, and uh, we miss them. Uh, also, as well, Sister Shirley Buchanan is not here today. And yesterday she celebrated her 80th birthday, and uh, we're thankful for Sister Shirley. Brother and Sister Smith also, uh, they just stand in need of prayer, and, and we want to hold them up in prayer today, uh, just going through different things in this season of life, and uh, we surely do miss them. It is great to have the Paschals with us uh, here today. Brother Joe, good to see you, and uh, it's uh, just a blessing to have you with us today, and may God continue to give you real strength and get you back on your feet, and uh, good to have you here. Uh, with us today. We believe that, uh, I, I personally, I, I just really believe that um, there must be a great purpose for Brother Joe's life because I believe the Holy Spirit just reached out and pulled him back from the brink, and uh, he knows that, and um, I, I believe that uh, it was uh, just a real uh, great blessing in, in his life, and, and I believe a real answer to prayer. And uh, there was lots and lots of people praying for you, Brother Joe, not only here, but around the world and uh, people who know us and uh, were sensitive to that request. And so we're very thankful for uh, you being here today. Up the road, Brother Joe's going to testify a little bit, tell us a little bit of his story and um, uh, share with us the good things that God has done. So we look forward to that. Well, uh, let me just, uh, I, I want to jump into the Word this morning and tackle this title here, uh, Why Would God Choose Me? But just, just before we do that, I had a couple of pictures that Brother Elias sent to me uh, from Loliondo over in Tanzania. And uh, Brother, uh, this is their winter season, so it's really, really quite cold over there, and that's why they're wearing their blankets and shawls there. But uh, the old man is a Maasai person who lives in Loliondo. I used to think that Loliondo was a little community, but it's not. It's a region. Uh, it's a region in the Rift Valley where the Maasai actually live and travel. And uh, so the, the, the missionaries now who are going there are going regularly, and they're going in lots of different new areas. Uh, I will tell you that the denominational system over there is really quite upset with this movement because there are people leaving denominational churches uh, because of the interest that's been stirred in the message. And uh, they're quite upset at, at the, uh, the missionaries who come through there. But nonetheless, they come regularly through there. 
and uh, they've, they've just been uh, finding lots of people, and they, they stop and talk with them. They come into their homes, and uh, this is what they're doing going through the Scripture there. Uh, this is an older man, and this is uh, uh, the missionary brother with uh, some of the other uh, families who were there, and some of these are new converts. This was the, the main church, and uh, a year or two ago, there was only one or two people that were baptized, you remember? And then there was a couple of more, and a couple of more, and a couple of more, and and so this is a regular group now that's meeting together over there. In that part of the world and in that culture, uh, people who are in, in uh, traditional tribal religions are very powerful. And uh, we would refer to them as witch doctors. And, and they, have a, they have a great say. They have a great amount of control in the villages and, and among those people because of the fear they put on the people. And there's lots of really strange and unusual things that can happen when those guys come around. And uh, they're not to be, they're not to be um, taken lightly. Let's put it that way. I, I remember sitting down talking with Brother Zephaniah Peters years ago, and he told me of some of his encounters with these people. And these were not people who were, um, you know, like, um, they, they were not just in, in uh, reputation only, but they were people who actually could make things happen. And they used bones, and they used the blood of animals, and they used uh, different uh, concoctions of herbs and spices and so forth. They, they, would, uh, uh, they had the ability to affect people over there. And this uh, brother Matthias, who was there, and he's the brother on the left with the shawl because it's so cold, uh, he he ran into one of these witch doctors, and that is the fellow right here. And he's described as a very dangerous fellow. And uh, Brother Matthias went in and spoke to him. And uh, the, normally in this culture, this this man would tell the missionary what to do. He would be ordering him around. But Brother Elias told me that when Matthias went in and talked to him, he said he just held, held open his Bible and he began to quote the scripture to him. And he told him the way of salvation. And he, he was describing to him what he needed to do to be saved. And he said this witch doctor was really uh, taken off guard. He was really uh, amazed that this person had such authority. But the reason he had the authority was because he was speaking from the word of God uh, to this man. And so it's just, just and all it is is just a, a great testimony of the effect of the word in that area. Uh, because this is penetrating a kind of darkness that most people never get to see, never never get to experience. And so uh, it's really exciting to see what God is doing among the people over there. And it breaks that fear. It breaks that, uh, that hesitation that they have. You know, they feel like these people are powerful and we have to regard them. Even though we might be a believer, we have to regard them. But this breaks that power and that fear uh, that they have over the people. So uh, it's like the book of Acts all over again. It's just a really great... Things. So we're looking, looking forward to the testimonies of uh, more of these folks that are uh, coming to the light, coming to the truth. Sister Becky has put a, a sign-up sheet there for the HBT uh, mother-daughter tea, which we're going to be doing this year on May 22nd at 2 p.m. And uh, it'll be in the shelter and fellowship hall here, so uh, those are in the library uh, outside. <coughs> Let's jump right into the Word, and if you don't mind, I'll have you take your Bible, and, and if you could stand with me, we'll... We just read out of respect to the scripture this morning. (coughs) 
Why would God choose me? That's a good question. That's a good question that all of us need to be able to answer together. Romans chapter 3, and we'll read in this very common passage of Scripture. Paul's explaining a very important thing about righteousness here, because righteousness was always considered a result of your complying with the law. Whatever the law said, and if you did that, you were considered righteous. But Paul makes a distinction now, and he says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law. That's an incredible thought that he's bringing to them. Imagine righteousness without the law is now manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord add his blessing. You may be seated this morning. Brother Joe, good to have you here today. One-armed Joe, we call him. Good to have him with us today. And all of you, may the Lord richly bless you today. I want to just jump in and answer, deal with this question here, and I, hope, I trust that this will make sense to you today as we, uh, as we look at this topic here, we look at this thought, why God would save somebody like me. Now, we understand the principles of election. We understand the doctrine of predestination. It's all through the Bible. It's all through the message. We understand that. In a perfect world, or in a world without Satan on the loose, this wouldn't be a problem because there'd be no interference or there'd be no hesitation. There would be no distraction from the promises. I believe that's really what heaven is. It's a world without an enemy. And uh, it, it will be a place where uh, whatever God says, that's, that's what goes. That's, that's the way it is. But in our world, everything that God says, there's a contest to that, isn't there? There's a contradiction to that. There's an objection to that. And if you don't believe that, you go out and tell people that, uh, you know, God doesn't honor a homosexual marriage. You'll find there's an objection to that, right? You'll find that there's opposition to the things that God says. And the principles that we, uh, we know are right and true, uh, <clears throat> the moment you stand for those, and the moment you declare those, then there comes a, uh, an opposition to those things in our world. And, and it's becoming worse and worse all the time, I think. You would agree, and I don't think there's any hesitation about that at all. But I want you to notice this, that in a a perfect world, believing in predestination or believing in election, it would be really great if there was no opposition. But sometimes it's the way that opposition comes that really makes us ask the question or doubt within ourselves, why would God choose somebody like me? Now, we know that in our sinful life there was nothing really any good about us that we thought. Right? We never saw really much good about ourselves in the beginning. I don't know about you, but if you know my testimony, and most of you do, uh, there really would have been anything that you could look at and say, wow, now that's a potential believer right there. You know, that would not have been the case. You would not have let me in to talk to your daughter if I showed up at your door. You better not. In my early state, I'd be the wrong guy you'd want to let in and talk to your daughter, Right? And it, 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 there's, there's, in our sinful state, there's nothing really that 
you know, that would give us cause to think that God would see something good in us. But remember, God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the inside, right? He looks upon the heart. And so, therefore, when God looked at us, he already knew something about us that we didn't know. Our parents didn't know. Our, our families didn't know. And you didn't even know. In the same way that David never knew he was a king. He never knew he had a king in him. And God knew when he looked at you in your wretchedness and in your unbelief, God knew there was a son or a daughter of God in there. In that flesh, in that carcass, he knew there was something good in there. And if I can get my hands on that, I can bring out qualities of Christ that this person would never even imagine would be there. So that's the way that uh, God looks at us. But I want you to know that even when we come into the faith, even when we come into the, uh, that atmosphere of salvation, that experience of salvation, that, that Satan doesn't just roll over and say, oh, man, lost another one. I'll move on to somebody else. He doesn't do that. He stays right there. And as a matter of fact, he cranks up the volume and assails us or, or troubles us even more than what we, uh, what we knew in the former days. You were on his team in the former days, and now you're in the opposition. And so he comes after us with a vengeance. Now let's look at that for a moment here tonight, because there's some things we need to know. And if I, maybe we may not get to complete this today, but let's see how far we can get. In the Church Age book, Brother Branham explains it this, day, this way. He says, when a man experiences the depth of God in his life, it is an actual personal experience of the Spirit of God dwelling in him. It's not a church experience. Somebody say amen. It's not a group experience. It is a, an individual experience of the Spirit of God indwelling him. His mind is illuminated by the wisdom and the knowledge of God through the Word. But the depth of Satan will attempt to destroy this. I like, I like the way Brother Branham says that. that, that that's that's, the, that's the, uh, the purpose of Satan in the world. But he's not going to destroy it, but he will attempt to destroy it. Attempting to destroy something and destroying something are two different things, right? Very simple here as we start out. He will attempt to make a substitute for this reality of God. How? He will take away the knowledge of the truth of God and destroy the word by putting forth, Yea, hath God said? He went to, he went to Adam and Eve in the beginning who knew what God said. Eve quoted to him what God said, right? And he went to him and used that in his conversation with her, and, and he said he will do it as he caused Israel to do the same, by a human being reigning as king instead of God, and the born-again experience will be rejected in favor of, of uh, church joining, and all the other ways that he takes something that God has said and, and just perverts it a little bit and still makes it, kind of sound right. He still makes it sound religious, and he still makes it sound like it could be doable. It could be justifiable. But it's not what God said. So the way that God will come in the depth of Satan, as he describes here, is, is to put a substitute in there for the reality of God. The reality of God is that, you know what, there is no other God besides the one true God. There is no higher power. There is no one more, more, uh, more awesome. There's no one who is more creative. There is no one uh, who, who controls things like our God. How many would agree? And Satan will do everything he possibly can to make a substitute for the reality of God. 
That's what he does. That's what he continues to do. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like you to just look at a couple of scriptures here because if we think that this is a, uh, you know, uh, a tough thing for us, remember that, that Satan also went after Jesus. And it says in Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto him, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. So the same, the same kind of attack that you go through is the same thing that, that Jesus went through. And that's why in John 15 he says, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. There would be no contradiction if you were of the world. There would be no contrary speech. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So when Jesus did things according to the scripture, there was, there was a spirit right there that said, that's not true. There was a spirit there that said, that's not right. Or that's not we, what we believe. That ain't so. Or who do you think you are? Just like uh, in, in the Old Testament when Moses was out there and leading the children of Israel and Dathan and Korah came to him and said, are you the only one that God speaks to? Are you the only spiritual one among us, right? And, and that's, what they, that's what they said. Here's, here's Moses saying something, and we have a contradiction. We have, we have God declaring something uh, that, is, that is really in harmony and in accord with the word of the hour, the promise of the hour. And, and here's somebody rising up. Imagine rising up and saying to Moses, it would be like rising up and saying to Brother Branham, uh, you know, hey, uh, that's not so. That's not thus saith the Lord. Really? Imagine, imagine doing that. Imagine having the, uh, the guts to do that. Or, what, or let's say it this way. What kind of spirit are we dealing with? When somebody would come and, and, and say something so contradictory, even right to their face, not in the closet. You remember when Jeremiah uh, told the people of Israel that they were going to be down in captivity 70 years, right? And, and this guy rolls in with a, uh, with a wooden yoke on his back. Another prophet comes in with a wooden yoke on his back. And he takes the yoke and he cracks it over his knee and he says, hey, God's going to break this yoke after three years. You're going to be back from Babylon. In other words, he's wrong. This prophet over here is wrong. So God tells Jeremiah, he says, go back in the church next week, next Sunday or next Saturday, and uh, bring yourself a yoke of iron. If he tries to crack that over his knee, then we'll have a healing service. Do that. I mean, you can imagine the, the spirit that you're dealing with when these prophets will get up and speak the word of God that God placed in their heart uh, to actually say. And many times we know from Brother Branham's own description, God would not only tell him what to say, but he'd tell him how to say it. He would say to Brother Branham, say it like this. Say it, you know, with a, with a certain kind of passion or a certain way, certain manner, uh, because he really wanted to get things across to the people. And so here's these prophets that are standing there, and Jesus simply says, or Paul is writing about him, and he says, Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied. If they fought Jesus, let me tell you, they're going to fight you. If they hated him, they're going to hate you. 
If, if there was a spirit of opposition that always hangs around whatever God is doing, if it lived in Jesus' day, it's not gone anywhere. It's still around. It's, it's going to be here today. And when you try to live right, uh, there's something there that, uh, you know, makes somebody say, well, you know what, you can bend a little bit here and you can move the boundaries a little bit here and you can, uh, you know, we can, we can stretch a little bit here. And Brother Bantam didn't really mean that. I mean, Brother Bantam lived all those years ago. He doesn't live today, so things are a little bit different now. Right? Same kind of spirit, same kind of attitude that, that, uh, that existed back in those days right here. So Jesus assures us that if you were in the world, there would not be any contradiction. There would not be any opposition. Whatever you wanted to do that felt good, and whatever you wanted to do that everybody else was doing, it would be no problem. I say this today. Thank God for a conscience, and thank God for conviction that the Holy Spirit brings in your life, because then you know that you're not like the world. You know that you're not. Uh, the way that they are. You know that, uh, you know, there, there's something different that's gone on the inside that checks me when, uh, you know, when I would do something that's contrary. Now, let me just go a little further and say this. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this about himself. And he's, he's telling the people uh, his story. But he tells it in this way. That though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that whereof he hath Trust in the flesh, I more. And Paul outlines this basic statement and he says, you know what? My flesh is better than yours. My, uh, my background is more solid than yours. And my history is sounder than yours. And, and, he, and he kind of describes this in this way to the uh, believers of that day. And he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews is touching the law of Pharisee. Back then, a lot of people were not, not circumcised on the eighth day as according to the law. Uh, they would delay that. And many times they would delay it because of the season. It wasn't convenient to be in Jerusalem. Uh, there were other ceremonies that went on, and so they would delay this. Paul says, if the law said it, I did it, even right from my birth, even right from the early days. He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning zeal, persecuting the church. The church was considered an enemy of the Hebrew faith. He said, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. There's not a thing about the law that you can pin on me. I've done everything that the law required of me. And let me tell you, if you want to lay your testimony down next to mine, mine's better than most people. But here's the principle. The principle is this, is that if anybody had a right to trust in their flesh or have a reason as to why God would save them, it would be found in me. And Paul says, hey... I have no confidence in this flesh. There is nothing about this flesh man that would justify God choosing me at all. But he says rather in verse 9, And be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. The only way that I could be found righteous is not because of anything that I have done or anything that's found in my flesh, but rather uh, the reason that God would have chosen me is because of what he saw in me and what he decided to do long before I even stood here. It was not based on anything I did. Somebody ought to say amen. It's not based on anything that I did. It's not based on my performance or my uh, reckoning with the Hebrew law or anything else. He said, God chose me. 
But let's take it a little further. It's another thing when people inside the faith will come against you. It's an amazing thing when people who are so-called message believers or Christians, how they make you feel. And it's, and it's a different thing when uh, you have an enemy that comes right into the camp and speaks your language. Take your Bible, if you don't mind, let's go to Second Chronicles chapter uh, 32. And we, we've, we've talked about this story a little bit in the past, but if you don't mind, just to refresh things a little, let's go back to Second Chronicles chapter 32, because there's some great key verses in here. Now, if you, if you have your Bible open to chapter 32 in Second Chronicles there, and you're there early, you can flip back a chapter or two, and this is the, the great stories of Hezekiah and how at the beginning of his reign, when he was only 25 years old, how that, uh, you know, he restored the, the tabernacle, he restored the Passover, and they had great victories, and they had great blessings upon the people. And uh, if, if you don't mind, uh, well, I, I'll just read you a little passage in chapter 30. He says, God told him, he said, if you turn again to the Lord, uh, your brethren and your children shall find compassion. And them that had them captive, so shall they come again unto this land. And the Lord your God is a gracious and merciful God. He will not turn away his face from you if you return unto him. And God made certain promises to the uh, children of Israel under Hezekiah. And, and they had their joy. There, there's, a, there's places in here where it talks about the joy of the Lord being restored. I'm again in chapter 30. And it says in verse 20, And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And the children of Israel, verse 21, were present at Jerusalem, kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing with loud instruments unto the Lord. And Hezekiah spake comfortably unto the Levites that taught the good knowledge of the Lord and did eat throughout the, their feast seven days and so forth. So they had, a, they, they understood restoration. They understood uh, the, you know, the blessings of God rebuilding and God uh, leading them to uh, enact true worship once again. And God honored that. God blessed that. So they, had, they, they were a people who were victorious, we would say. They were a people who were on top of the, on top of the pile. They were moving on. And it says in verse 32 that uh, after all of this had taken place, they're still remembering the great services and the great conventions and the great blessings they had of God's presence there. Who shows up on the scene but Sennacherib? And Sennacherib was one of the ancient Syrian kings who came after Israel. And he was one who had destroyed Babylon. He was a pretty powerful guy. Remember the Babylon who took the children of Israel away, Nebuchadnezzar. And God raised up uh, Sennacherib to destroy the city of Babylon, and that's how it got uh, brought to ruins. And so Sennacherib's a pretty powerful guy. As a matter of fact, he had a great area under his reign in the year around 700 B.C., great territory that he that he commanded. Therefore, he had a great army and he had great resources. In other words, he's a kind of a, a, a general, kind of a king who can build railroads and bring supplies to his troops and move everybody around. Did it, by the way, they didn't have railroads back then, but whatever supply chains they had back there, he had enough money and enough influence to be able to accomplish that and move his armies around quickly and be able to destroy minor uh, minor groups and minor nation. 
So it happened that Israel was standing in the path of Sennacherib, and he gets his eye on Jerusalem, and he wants to go after that prize, and he begins to move his armies in that direction. And so the, uh, the story goes on, and you can take time to read it later at, on your, at, at your leisure, but uh, Hezekiah gets up and he tells the people in verse 7, he said, Be strong and courageous, and be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. For with him is an arm of flesh, and with us is the Lord God to help us and to fight our battles. And then the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So in other words, don't quit, fellows. He says we, we're on the winning side, and, and, and everything's going to be okay. So he encourages the people that way, and that's the right thing to do. And, and he does that. But then it says in verse 8, because, or sorry, verse 9, because even though that this is, this is how things really are. And Hezekiah's got a, a piece about what he just said. He believes what he's just said. But it's an interesting story of how that Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he himself laid siege against Lachish and his power, and all of his power with him, unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, unto all Judah that were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Sennacherib, king of Assyria, wherein you trust. Whereon do you trust that you abide in the siege of Jerusalem? Doth not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of King Assyria? So they're standing there, and, and, and the king sends messengers to them, and he begins to uh, ask them the question, You know, uh, you people have your trust in, in uh, Hezekiah, and you have your trust in your leadership, and so forth. But uh, maybe you don't know the story of, of King Sennacherib. And so they begin to tell him the, the, the great exploits of the king. In other words, here's a man, Hezekiah, has got a right revelation, but, but here's, here's Satan operating against God's people, and he begins to tell them, he says, you know, but there are great forces that are arrayed against you. And it really is a foolish thing for you to trust in your God. And as we go down through the scripture here, we find that uh, Sennacherib makes a very fatal mistake. And if you don't mind, just take a look at it here. I'm reading in verse 14. And who was there among all the other gods of these nations that my father has utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand. Verse 15, Now therefore let not Hezekiah deceive you, nor persuade you on this manner, and neither yet believe him. For no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of mine hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? And I will tell you something. That's where Sennacherib made his fatal mistake, because he brought God down to the level of all the other gods that everybody believed in. And he says, what's so different about your God? What's so different about, uh, you know, your idea uh, of this great God that you serve? And, and listen, uh, you, there's, there's no power against a king like Sennacherib. He's, he's the king of all the region and all the lands around about. So, I, I mean, it's pointless for you to uh, put your trust in him. He's no different than any other God. And I will tell you something, that, that that's not a foreign concept, right? That even believers, people who trust in the living God. Come on, look at me and, and somebody ought to say amen here. It's no different than the kinds of struggles that we go through, that, that Satan would get on your shoulder and say, well, you know, really, what's different for, for you people? What's, what's, so, what's so great about things for you people? That, 
You feel like you have an edge or you feel like you have an advantage somehow. And yet, you know, this person is sick or that person dies or something else. And, you know, he'll remind you of your weaknesses. He'll remind you of the troubles that we face. And many are the afflictions of the righteous. Isn't that right? In other words, it's really an internal attempt here to, uh, to get at your faith and to get at your confidence and, and to get at your ability to believe in the right thing and trust in the right thing. Hey, trust is a great thing, but you've got to have your trust in the right thing. Trust is a great thing, but you've got to have it in the right thing. Because it's no good for you really to have trust in yourself. You remember the previous statement where Paul says, Hey, if any man has a right to trust in the flesh, it's me. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, somebody who's born right, circumcised right, everything done right. But he says, I have no trust in myself. My righteousness is based on the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Right? And so it, there's a lot of people who have confidence in themselves. There's a lot of people who have confidence in their money or their job. There's a lot of people who have confidence in the country. Right? There really is. Because they don't know God. And they have a lot of con- confidence in the country that somehow or another our system of democracy is going to win out over all the enemies that, that we face. And, and everything's going to be okay. And as long as we stay in America, we're all right. Brother Branham said, it's not the problem on the outside. It's the worm on the inside of the apple. He said, that's really going to destroy that whole system. Right? So it's not enemies foreign. It's not enemies abroad that really are going to be our demise. We are, we are doing a great job at really undermining the whole process of democracy ourselves. And without the freedoms that democracy brings, let me tell you, our nation will be a very, very different nation. I will say this, that, that uh, here's Paul saying that, you know, it, it's, it's really great for you to have confidence and have trust, but you've got to have it in the right thing. Paul says, I could have it in myself, but it would really be misplaced. I really need to make sure, and I need you to be sure, that your faith is placed in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, and that's the only way we are righteous before God. Hezekiah has all of his people together, and they're at a position of battle. But I want you to notice in verse 17, and here's where I wanted to come to. He says, he wrote, the king, Sennacherib, he wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him. So he's actually, got, he's actually writing letters against God as the gods of the nations of other lands have delivered their people out of their hand. So shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. Then they cried with a loud voice in the Jews' speech unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to affright them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spake against the God of Jerusalem as against the God of the people of the earth, which were the work of the hands. He wrote to the people in their own language. In other words, the way I interpret this is that he actually would have used the message because that would have got their attention. He would have used the language they're familiar with in order to trouble them and affright them. He would, have, he would have taken things out of context, but used them to say, you're trusting in a God uh, like all the other nations trusted in a God. And you know what? Uh, their gods all died in the battle. Their, their gods are all history now, and it didn't, didn't, uh, didn't help them at all to trust in their God. And your God is really no different than their God. And he was using the message of the hour to explain that to them and to try to get their attention and undermine the faith that they had in the one true and living God and to get them to think, well, maybe God's not so powerful after all. 
Maybe we should rely on this, and maybe we should rely on that. Or maybe we should turn somehow and uh, not be so steadfast here, standing without any weapons. Maybe we should try to uh, defend ourselves. And it would have been contrary to what Hezekiah told him in the first place, right? You see the scene, or you see how Satan works. And I will just tell you this, that when they came to this place, I mean, up to this point, there's no shots fired, there's no arrows that are drawn, uh, there's no uh, catapults that are shot, there's no uh, boiling oil poured over the wall. That must have been a terrible thing. And, they have, you know, there's, there's no conflict at this point. But I will tell you something that, you know, here the Jews listening to this, and, and, and this enemy is trying to convince them of something that's absolutely untrue, but he's doing it right in their own language to get their attention and to try to touch their heart and their mind. God finally says, you know what? I've had enough. That's it. That's it. They've gone too far. And God says, if you don't mind, I'm going to get involved. Because it's one thing to talk about the other gods of other nations. But when he makes me on that level, when the first commandment and the first thing God wanted his people to know was, I am the Lord your God. There's none other besides me. And this clown on the wall is making me like some god that doesn't exist. And I would just like to take a moment, he's telling the angels, I'd just like to take a moment and show them that I do exist. And the Bible says that he called, verse 20, Hezekiah began to pray, verse 21, and the Lord sent an angel. God says, that's it, we're going to cut this off. This guy, is, this, this fellow who's full of hot, hot air, who's on the wall, uh, that's it, we're going we're gonna to stop this right here, we're going we're gonna, to... Let me tell you, I just need you to understand that God knows our limitations. God knows how much opposition that he will have his people endure. God just does not let it roll on aimlessly and endlessly, but God knows exactly where to draw the line. God knows exactly where to pull the plug. And I have every confidence of this. You know, lots of people will say to me, well, how come we're not gone yet? Why, isn't, why doesn't God shut it down? You know, why isn't it over yet? Well, uh, there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of really good reasons. And one of them is because the iniquity, the cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I believe it's near full, but I don't believe that it's full yet. And I believe we're going to see a little more of that on that side, and we'll speak on that in, in a little bit. But I believe we're going to see more of that side. The cup of the, uh, the iniquity of the Amorites, uh, that's, that's how God referred to the situation back in the days of Abraham. And so it was not among the believers, but in the world around the believers, there were certain things that had to be filled up, had to be completed. And when that was completed, then God said, that's it, I'm going to shut it down. In other words, there's enough of iniquity around that, that now it just saturates everything. And there's nothing I can do to turn this around, so I'm going to stop it and cut it off right there, back in the days of Abraham, and that's what God did. And I believe that we have also the same promise, and that's what's going to come uh, to pass in our day as well. The cup of, of iniquity of the Amorites will be full to the place where uh, God's not going to allow it to proceed anymore. It's not going to spill over anymore, but God will shut it down, and that will happen. But that's got to happen in God's time, because we don't know how full is full. We don't know how overflowing it's got to get to before God decides to shut it down. 
So people will say, well, why doesn't God shut it down? And then the other reason is because uh, God, uh, I, I believe that God is working among the bride of Christ as well uh, to perfect in us what he wants to take out of here into his kingdom. And I, I really believe that God's still, I, well, I'll say it this way. I believe God's still working on me. Uh, I don't know about you. You might have reached perfection yet, and you can just polish your halo until this sermon's over. But I will just say this, that I believe that God is working on me still. He's got some refining in me to do. But I, but I, I do know this, that, that God will allow certain pressures to come and certain things to happen in our lives in order to uh, bring us to a place of repentance and bring us to a place of real willingness to change. Even though it's harder as you get older, I believe that God wants to weed out things that don't belong and, and, and to mold or perfect us in certain ways that he wants us to, uh, to, to be and, and to hold that for eternity. He wants to capture that and bring that into eternity. I, I believe that's what's going on. So while that's happening, God has his eye upon you, and he's not letting that become greater than this. Do you understand? God is not going to let that out in the world become greater than this, what's going on in here. God's more concerned about this in here. But he's got a time so that by the time that that gets right for judgment, this will be ready. I believe that. This will be ready. And God will take us into that kingdom at his appointed time. And then the lid will come off the whole thing. And you won't want to be here during that time. You'll be glad that God worked, worked you over. You'll be glad that God sanded you off. You'll be glad that God took you in the workshop and gave you the going over that you needed to have in your life. I was in my shop the other day with a brother minister and we were just talking about woodworking and immediately he looked around my shop and he said wow what a great escape and i said yeah but you're not supposed to say that out loud but just a place where brother david knows and lucas knows a place where he can go and just kind of you know i'll put on some music out there and just you know kind of listen and 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 do some woodworking and but I, I will tell you this, that I, over, over the last couple of years, and Brother Mark's done the same thing, and I, sh- I shouldn't say that, Brother Mark, but about the escape part. Because it's not an escape from, from family, but it, sometimes it's just an escape from pressures and all the other emails and all the other things that go on. But I'll just say this. I, the reason I brought that up is this. <clears throat> I went out to a... A mill the other day where I uh, get my woods out in Floyd, Virginia, and I went out there, and the guy was uh, had a he has all kinds of uh, dried wood out there, kiln dried wood, and uh, there was a slab of oak that was on the ground, about ten feet long, is about a foot wide, three inches thick, gnarled, knotty, twisted. I mean, it was a reject. It was just laying on the ground. There was no, it wasn't stacked up with the other hardwoods that are out there. And uh, this was white oak is what I was after. And my, one of my daughters-in-law wanted to have a, uh, a certain shelf, kind of a shelf made out of white oak. And so I looked at that, that piece that obviously had been picked out of the pile and rejected. And I looked, I, I, you know, I, I looked at that and I thought, huh. I said, how much do you want for that, this, this reject of a piece? And he said, ah, he said, I got three pieces like that. He said, I'll give you three of them for 25 bucks. I said, really? And he said, yeah. I mean, if you took white oak like that uh, and, you know, in a finished form, it would be, you know, several hundred dollars. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll take them. And he said, are you sure you want to take them? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. I said, 
give me a hand. They're so big, I couldn't lift them myself. And I said, give me a hand. We put them in the back of the truck, and I took them off and brought them home. And I took one of the pieces. The pieces were so hard and so thick that the only way I could cut them was with a chainsaw. And I took my chainsaw and cut a four-foot length off it, and uh, I began to work with it. And Brother David will tell you, he's shaking his head over here, and uh, not because he's nodding off to sleep, but uh, he, he's seen it. And I, I took that board and began to work with it just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and worked it and flipped it and worked it again, worked it again, and got it to the place where, I mean, it was just absolutely a beautiful piece of furniture. Why would you do that? Why would you, why would you bother with that? Why would you... Why would you pick up the reject? Let me tell you, the reason I picked up the rough, gnarly piece of wood is because I have confidence in my tools. I know what those tools can do. I know how powerful they are. And because of that, the condition of this didn't matter. The condition of how I found this thing doesn't matter. It can be, it can be in totally disastrous shape, but I know the tools that I've got to work on this right here. So therefore, I can buy that practically for nothing. It's a reject. Nobody else would want it because you really can't do much with it. But I know the tools that I have, so I purchased that, brought it home, and began to work it with the tools that I have. And, and it turns into something that you wouldn't believe it could be so beautiful, but, but there's, there's, there's a transition that it goes through. All I'm saying, I think you can make the simple spiritual uh, you know, connections here, that the reason that God would have chosen us is not because on the outside, or to look at us, we would be anything that anybody would desire. That our condition, our sinful condition, is not something that God would be attracted to. But He's not looking at the outside. He's looking at the inside. And He knows the tools He's got to work on you in life. He knows the, the, the strength of His tools. He knows what He's got, the Holy Spirit, to be able to tutor you and to shape you and to mold you and to convert you and to transform your thinking into a real son or a daughter of God. He knows that, that listen, no matter how bad it is, that I'm able to transform that into what I want. I'm able to transform that into what I saw before the foundation of the world when I snapped that photograph back there. The vision is in the eye of the Creator and the righteousness or the value is in the eye of the Creator when He takes that piece and begins to work with it and mold it. And let me tell you something. The shaping process, though it's not easy and though it's not quick, over time it becomes what the Creator wants. Why would God choose me? Because he has confidence in his tools. Why would God choose me? Because he knows what lays in me. Why would God choose me? Because he knows exactly how it's going to come out. And even when it's the problem with the world that would try to discourage you, even when it's people using your own language, like Sennacherib did, even when it's people using the very thing that we hold dear and using those things to try to discourage us altogether, let me tell you something. For us, there's something greater in us than what's in the world. There's something that holds us and keeps us more than what's in the world. Here's the way Brother Branham said it. God is the sole judge of who's a Christian and who's not. I like that statement. I think that's a good statement. God is the sole judge of who is a Christian and who's not. So therefore, my advice to you is don't let somebody else tell you that you are or are not a Christian. 
Don't let somebody come along and say, well, you know, you think you're a part of that church or you think you've been baptized in the name of Jesus or whatever else. That, you know, that makes you a Christian. You're not really a Christian. Look at all the other people that are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And after all, those are words in red. And uh, everybody does it that way. And everybody will contest you on the Trinity and so forth. And I say, hey, listen, I just have a revelation that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not three separate gods. They are the one true living God, and His name is Jesus Christ. And whatsoever we do in word or in deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore, we're going to let God judge who is a Christian and who's not. Don't you let some enemy tell you whether you are or whether you're not. They don't have a right. But I also have this admonition for you as well. Don't you try to call yourself something when you're not that. And don't try to, don't try to opt out when God calls you one of his own. Are we Okay. Because it's not up to you. It's God who calls and God who judges and God who has transformed us and God who purchased us on Calvary's cross. Isn't that right? It's not us. And we can only judge ourselves as we weigh ourselves in God's word and see how our life compares with his requirements and our desires towards that and our attitude towards what he has required us to do. That's how we, that's how we measure. That's how we, uh, we would assess things. And so noticing that came on my mind. He says, why did the people who had... The, Spirit of the, uh, the Holy Spirit in their heart, why would they drift away from God? Why would people who claim to have that, why would they drift away? But I've noticed that his word, that he always keeps his word to that person. And if you truly, if you have received Christ, then there's nothing can take that away from you. If you've received Christ, there's nothing can take that away from you. But the only way we'll know that we're saved is when we've met God's conditions. Do you notice what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that we'll know that we are Christians when we've met our conditions. If, if you're like me, you'll never make the grade. I don't know how you feel about it, but the moment you feel like you're making some advances, you'll do something stupid. You do something that you're ashamed of. You do something that you're sorry you did. You'll say something you wish you'd never said. Isn't that right? And part of it is because I live in a body that's not born again. And it gets tired and it gets overwrought and it gets tempted and it gets pulled and pushed by all kinds of different forces that, go on, that exist in the world. And I outlined some of them here. You live in a world that hates you. You live in a world that's falling apart. It's scrambling for survival. Can you say Amen. We live in a world where nobody has an answer for the, for the problems that we face in our life. And people are frustrated. And, and, and people are angry. I don't know if you notice it, but I find people more angry now than ever before. They're angry because they don't know. You know they, they, it's almost like they're losing control. People in the world are losing control. And people who, who feel that way, they feel fearful, they'll very often snap at you and they'll be angry at you. And like I said on Wednesday night, there, you know, there, there seems to be a preponderance, an increase of the amount of anger in our world. And, and, and so we, we, live in a, we live in a place where everything around us essentially is hostile towards us. We're trying to live in two worlds at the same time. Right? You're living in this world. You've got to work and live and go to school and graduate and all that. And you've got you to labor. You've got to retire. You've got to do all the things that you have to do in this world and satisfy the requirements of this world. Right? You've got to pay your taxes and, and all the other things that are necessary. But we're also living in another world at the same time. The people in this world only have to live in one. But we have to live in two. At the same, I'm not complaining. I think it's great that we have a connection with another kingdom here. But we have to live in two. 
and, and there's a push and a pull and a push and a pull. And Paul finally says, hey, I would desire. He said, if I had my way, I'd be gone into that kingdom. I would leave. But for your sake, he said, I stay. <clears throat> You're never saved by your feelings. You're saved by your faith. Your faith does it. And then your life proves whether you received it or not. Let's say this together. You're never saved by your feelings. So that's all I'll say it. You're never saved by your feelings. Now put yourself into it and say, you're never saved. I'm never saved by my feelings. I'm never saved by my feelings. I'm not saved because of my feelings. I might feel like I really like this church. I might even really like Brother Barry. That's a stretch. I might feel like I've lived a good life, never had to erase a tattoo in my life. I might feel like I really have read about Jesus and I love him and all this, you know, like you've been raised around a church that has always talked about him. And I feel, I feel like I'm okay. You're not saved by that. That's a good thing to have, but you're not saved by that. You're saved by your faith. And what Jesus did for you to make it possible for you to have harmony and communion with God. There isn't a thing. Let me drop down in a paragraph. There's nothing in my arms I bring. There's not a thing I could do, Brother Random says. He predestinated me. He called me. He chose me. I never chose him. He chose me. He chose you. He chose all of us. We didn't choose him. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Why would he choose Peter? Why would he choose the apostle Peter? Peter's got a temper. Peter's got a, a streak of violence in him that uh, he probably didn't want to admit, right? I mean, listen, when you're cutting off people's ears with a sword, you must have had a troubled childhood somewhere, right? Or something going on. Peter had a foul mouth. Peter was quick to deny Jesus when he got around the campfire with everybody. Remember, they said, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Remember that? And he cursed, the Bible says. Why would he choose somebody like Peter? Unless he knew what laid in Peter. Unless he knew that there was something that, if, if only Peter could surrender, if only Peter could give over to him, that God could make him what he wanted him to be. God's looking for one thing. He's looking for character from men and women who can conduct themselves as sons and daughters of the king. God have mercy on us that he will do it. Let me tell you, it's not for you to produce a character. It's the Holy Spirit who wants to work with his tools to bring out the right kind of character in you. That's why you need him, because you can't do it yourself. That's what I'm after, friends, is character. That's what God's pulling for, is character for that bride that will be taken out. And as sons and daughters of God, he says, let's act like it. Let's be sons and daughters of God. There, there is only one way. Now, if, if you don't mind, let's just, let's just jump for a moment here. Brother Branham says in the Old Testament, the believer, he may be committed adultery. He came with a lamb. Told a lie, he came with a lamb. The first thing, the lamb must be perfect, without a blemish, for a sin offering. A lot of people think, well, I, I could be a Christian if I could quit this, or if I could just be a better man or a better woman. You'll never be better in that estate. You'll never think your way into sinlessness. You'll never perform your way into righteousness. 
You can never get better until something comes in you to make you better. And then you're born again. You can't do it. Do you agree with that? You can't do it. A lot of people in the message even will feel like, well, you know, I'm in the message and I believe that God sent a prophet and I believe I got all the books. I have a phone. I have a Bible app. And so therefore, you know, I'm okay. I will tell you something. You can have all that stuff and it still will not make you the son of God God wants you to be. It takes the involvement. It takes the interaction of the Holy Spirit to take what is said and transform that into a life lived. Are we okay? It, it, it is not just information. It's not just data. It's not just an app. There is no app for this. Hello? I know that cuts contrary to a lot of people's thinking. There is no app for salvation. There is no app for changing your body. Holy, the Holy Spirit has the mechanism. He has the ability. He has the secret. He has the key. He has it, and it's not in an app. It's not on your phone. It's not accessible in that way. It's not able to be Googled. He's got it, and he wants to bring it inside you and release it so it can work and do what God wants it done in your life to make you what he envisioned you to be in the first place. I showed you this diagram before, but let's just take a quick look at it. There is none righteous, no, not one. In Romans 3, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. No matter how hard we try, no matter how good of a sinner you are, you still have to come to God's righteous requirement. You still have to have your sins forgiven, right? No matter how great, no matter how pure, no matter how uh, nice of a sinner you are, you're still a sinner because you're a sinner until you meet God's requirement. Are we okay? There's only one way to get past that requirement is that somebody had to pay the price that God required, and that is only through Christ and through his blood. That's the only way. But when he shed his blood and you by faith accept that and you can go through the requirements of God, you have met the requirements of God. Not you have met the requirements of God, but he stepped in and said, I'll meet them for you and paid the price so that you can go right on past what holds back mankind and enter into eternal redemption. Are we okay? I mean, I, I, th- I think we should be happy about this because it's not by the blood of goats and, and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place having obtra- obtained eternal redemption for us. He did it. He did it. It wasn't me. He did it. And I, you know what? I know. I know. I didn't deserve it. I know. It was not because of my conduct. I know all of that is not because uh, of anything that really I deserve, but it is his grace and his mercy that allows this to happen. Now, if this is true, if this is true, then the one who maintains, if a person experiences this indwelling Christ, they go through that whole process of new birth. It means then that the Holy Spirit has the rule or dominion over that person. Isn't that right? The Holy Spirit has the rule or dominion over that person. And the Holy Spirit wants to exercise dominion over that person. He wants to tell you what it is that's going to happen. In our nation, they're trying to change laws and trying to uh, even change constitutional principles and trying to 
changed taxation laws and everything else to pay for lots of programs and incentives that are uh, on the tables or on the books in our government. And they're going to tell you what the tax rate is going to be. They're going to tell you what corporations are going to have to pay. They're going to tell you how things are going to be in the future. And we elected, we as a nation, we as a people, elected that government, and you get what you want, right? And so, therefore, we, have, we are inviting a certain government to have dominion over us, and there is no say, really, about that. You can write all the letters you want uh, to your representatives, but there will be no uh, rectifying that or changing that until there is another election in, in the in the future upcoming here. But until then, we, we now become subject to the reign of that power that is in Washington, right? And that's the way it works. And they will exercise dominion. And because you're a subject of the, of the country, then you have to have uh, compliance with that or you wind up going to the clinker. And, and that's the way it is. Satan wants to have that dominion over you, so he, he, he will, will try to... Being born in sin, he'll have that dominion over us in our fallen state and in our nature, our fallen nature, until a stronger one comes in, right, destroys that sin nature. And then now the Holy Spirit has dominion over us. To me, that's the beautiful thing. It's not just that we are back in harmony with God. That is a great thing. But to me, what's really great is that now we... We're in a position where the Holy Spirit can take dominion over your life. And he can make you at peace with your spouse. He can make you at peace with your past. He can make you at peace with one another. And to me, that's an exciting thing. That you don't have to fall back into the ruts and the history you have and all the things where Satan grabbed a hold of that weakness in you and exploited it and made you feel like a rat made you feel like a loser, made you feel like, you know, you were just a, a, a terrible person. There's a lot of terrible people who feel like terrible people because they're terrible people, and Satan reminds them of that. You know what? Every one of us are terrible people until the Holy Spirit comes in. Terrible in the sense of, you know, we're lost and we're born in sin. All of us are that way. We're subject to the dominion of Satan and how he, how he influences us. This word dominion is an interesting one. You remember when Joseph's brothers said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? This is when he told them the dreams. And he said, You know, all the other sheaves bowed down to me. And they said, Hey, shall, shall you indeed reign over us? Because this idea of dominion was a very important thing to Jewish people. They, didn't, they believed in the one true God. And they believed that only God really should have the ultimate say. So now here they are. And quickly... They, they're, they're not interpreting correctly what Joseph's telling them. He says, or indeed shall, or thou shalt thou indeed have dominion over us. And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Because they didn't want to be subject to, to their own brother over, this, over these dreams and so forth. Genesis 3.16, watch. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So now there's going to be a, a dominion that's exercised within a, within a marriage, within a relationship. Genesis 4, 7, And if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. He's speaking to Cain. And unto thee shall be his desires, and thou shalt rule over him. 
So this idea of, of rulership here, especially in the Old Testament, we, we find it described here, is, is a different kind of rulership than we find in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes in. Because when the Holy Spirit comes in, he wants to take that rulership of your life and take you out of the bondage that we find ourselves in and bring us into glorious liberty, to bring us into the place where we can enjoy the things that God has for us. And we can enjoy the things that God has, um, God has predestinated for us. He has not dealt with us, David said, after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so hath God removed our transgressions from us. In other words, let me just say this. David realizes the only hope we have is that God deals with us in his mercy. The only hope we have. The only way that we'll make it is that God doesn't judge us, but he extends mercy towards us. Like as a father, father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. So he knows exactly, he knows exactly, uh, David understands exactly that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a part of God, there's an attribute of God that does not want to destroy what he's created, but he wants to save it. He wants to bring salvation to its feet. He wants, to, wants that creation to make the right choice and to turn to him. And David understood that when somebody turns to God, God is gracious to forgive. God is gracious to uh, extend, you know, to, to put the distance between them and their sins as far as the east is from the west. And David understood that part of the nature of God that, you know, when we, when we do the right thing, and when we observe his, his ways and his rules, that God doesn't deal with us according to his judgments. But rather, you know, there's a, a side of God that we can appeal to, the merciful side of God. And David says that's our only hope. I can imagine now doing this, and I'm not going to be long here, but I'm just going to say that you can imagine trying to accomplish this without the Holy Spirit. And that's pretty hard for us to imagine because most of you, most of you have an experience of salvation. Most of you adults that are here have an experience of salvation with God. But imagine trying to do this just on your own, your own strength. In the same way that you would say, I'm not going to smoke any more cigarettes and I'm not going to say any bad words and I'm not going to overeat and I'm not going to do this. And we try to discipline ourselves. Imagine trying to live honorably in the sight of God by yourself. That's a pretty hard thing to do. And God knew that. So he says, I'll take the stony heart out of, the, out of a man. I'll put in my spirit. I'll, I'll, I'll take this out and I'll put this in. I'll take this out and I'll put this in. So I'll equip that person with everything he needs to live in a way that's pleasing to me. And now this becomes much more possible. This becomes much more doable for us to live in a way that's pleasing to God. Because now it's not me that lives, but Christ that lives in me. Are we Okay. So here we are living in a day when it's possible to have this on the inside and people still turn away. In reality, our church should be filled, right? In rea- it, it, common sense would tell you, if you had a remedy that would allow somebody to live above the addiction of drugs and the addiction of pornography and the addiction of lust and all the other addictions that exist in this world, which are really spirit-based, Right? 
drugs like nicotine or whatever else. It's the thing that you know people fool around with, and then all of a sudden it, it, the barb shows up and hooks a person and draws them so that they can't escape. Even some great big fish on some real small hooks couldn't get away because those barbs work. And Satan knows just exactly when to sink the barb in and pull a person in and what they thought they could handle and what they thought they could control. And what they thought they could, you know, I, I got this, I got this. I don't, Brother Barry, I don't, I don't need you to say anything else. I got this. And all of a sudden, a barb shows up. And they can't shake this problem. Now they're in too far. Now they're emotionally connected to this thing. Now they're mentally connected to it. And it's just too far. But imagine if the remedy was available and people didn't take it. Imagine if the remedy was accessible. It was accessible without money, without price. Imagine if you had the solution to that. Imagine if you had the solution to your own sinful nature and you didn't take it. You'd have, God would do this number. God would do this. What more can I do? What else can I say? What else can I show them? What else can I reveal to them? What better prophet can I send to them? I'd have to say this. I think God did a great job of making the gospel real in our time. I have to say that. Because even folks that are really simple and uneducated, you still, still be able to relate to the things that have been shown to us in our day. And to turn away from that, I, I'll tell you what, we, it wouldn't be sensible to turn away from it. For me, I'm thankful that I have accepted it and received it. And I, you know what? I want to always stay close to that. I want to I live in that way. I want to say, Lord, if there's some way that you know my ambitions or my temptations or whatever else are pulling me this way. And Lord, I don't want to do that. Why would God save me? Because he knew, he knew he could deal with me from the inside out. That God had placed something in me that he could transform over time to make me what he wants me to be. And Lord, I always want to be that way. There is nothing really, anything about our flesh or anything really good about us that, uh, that meets God's requirements, that, that meets God's satisfaction level. I don't believe that's it at all. I, I believe that God wanted to make us. He wanted to change us and transform us. But you've got to be willing to do that. You've got to be willing to let go and let God have his way to do that. Let's have our musicians just slip up for a moment here and just quietly slip up here and say this, that I believe that that same opportunity is still available today. I believe that he still saves. Do you believe that? I believe that he still baptizes with the Holy Ghost. I believe that he still cares about what you're going through. And, and I believe that he knows that sometimes people can get, good people even can get bound in things. But even, even if they're trapped or caught or somehow or another bound, I, I believe the Holy Spirit has, always has a remedy. He always has a way out. You're never too strong for the Holy Ghost. You're never too strong for God. He's always, got a, he's always got a way. He's always got a remedy. Somebody never given their heart to Christ, never surrendered their life to him. Uh, you know, I, I, believe that, uh, I believe that he's still, his arms are still open. I believe he's, he's a God of mercy tonight, just like David prayed. I believe he still seeks, and I believe he still calls. God knows exactly how much you can take. God knows exactly how close those enemies come in. And when... When the enemy pushes too hard, God takes his jacket off, rolls his sleeves up, and says, I'm going to step in now. Because I always have an angel that's able to take care of the opposition. Forgive me for being so simple today, but I, I will say this, that 
you know, when it comes to the question of why God would save me, sometimes we look at ourselves and even, even in our own self-doubting, even if our own troubles with ourselves, God has the final say on who's a Christian and who's not. And I'm going to let him have the final say. I'm not going to let somebody talk me out of this. I'm not going to let Satan talk me out of this. I'm not going to let me talk me out of this. He has the final say. He's a judge. And I believe he still calls. Let's stand to our feet. At the feet of Jesus, the greatness of His wonder and love. At the feet of Jesus, we cry, holy, 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 and we cry, holy.
save somebody like us, right? Why would God deal with somebody like us? It's not anything else but God's foreknowledge. God knowing. God looking at something that no one else would choose and would choose us because he's got the tools to be able to make us what he wants us to be. I'd like to stay and pray for anybody today who would need prayer. Somebody, maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ. Maybe you've never really 
let go and given your life to God. I, I'd be glad to pray with you this morning. Or maybe there's some other need in your life. Maybe somewhere Satan's kind of pulled you a little bit farther than what you, you anticipated. Just like somebody to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that today. Because I believe that God is merciful. And when we approach him on the basis of his mercy, like David said, then you know what? We have that attribute of God that we can draw from. That God releases that. God, God in his great patience and his love for us. God cares about what you're going through. If you have a need today, our God is the same and he knows exactly what the answer always is. Let's sing that little chorus this morning. He has forgiven me. And he
time. Anybody needs prayer this morning? Be glad to pray with you. Lead me, Lord. Yes, I will follow. Just lead me, Lord, and I will go.
Of the cherubim. 
that we can still call upon you. Lord, you're still dealing with hearts and lives. I ask, oh God, that you would just continue to minister, Lord, to each one of your children, Lord. And I know you're dealing with the hearts of some of these young people that are here, and I just pray that your mercy would be extended to them, Lord. Father, your prophet taught us that when the Spirit of God is moving, that, Lord, we should act quickly upon it. And so, Lord, we live in a world where there's many pressures and many enemies and many discouragements, but we know that when the Holy Spirit's still calling, Lord, there's still, a, there's still hope and there's still opportunities for us, and Lord, may we take full advantage of those. We believe, Lord Jesus, that you care about our destiny, care about bringing us here in this particular age, and now, Lord, we are depending upon you. Be merciful to those who are sick, to those who need help, Lord. To those who have struggled and suffered long with conditions, we commit them to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you're a strength giver, you're a savior, you're a healer and a comforter. Lord, you're able to be, you're able to be everything to us. Bless the people, I pray, till we meet again. I commit them into your hands now. In the name of Jesus Christ. God still moves. Sing that this morning as you go. May God bless you. If you want to stay and worship a little, you're certainly welcome to do that. God still moves. God still moves. Hold it one second before you go. Just hang on. In the hearts of His people, God still moves. this morning and I wanted to just share that with you and have a word of prayer. Uh, Brother John Skaggs who was here and visited a couple of years ago at Sister Anna's uh, uncle. Uh, he's a minister who lives out in Montana and he's got an opportunity this morning to go into a Pentecostal church and they want him to testify about the things that 
are happening in our time. And so he wrote me this morning and asked, would we remember him in prayer at the end of our service? Uh, he listens very faithfully to our services, and uh, because he's going into that environment, he just wants to be used of God and, and uh, let God have his way. So I told him we would pray for him and just uh, ask that God would put words in his mouth and uh, help him to say the right thing and uh, convey the right thing to those people. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we think about Brother John, Lord, and his desire to serve you and heading into that environment, Lord, I just ask that you would be gracious to him. Lord, anoint him mightily, I pray, that he might be able to say the right thing. Lord, and just to be able to convey the Spirit of Christ among those people, Lord. Heavenly Father, we know today that any opportunity we have to be able to uh, witness and to share the great things that you've done in our time, Lord, it's a a great opportunity. And Lord, I just ask that you would just move in his heart, Lord. I pray that you would put words there, Lord. And Father, take him from his thoughts and just allow him to be able to have the freedom to speak truth in that circumstance, Lord, and Father, I pray that you would deal with hearts, because Lord, there's always a reason why doors like this open, and I I just pray that you would deal with hearts, Lord, among those people today. We just commit that situation to you now, and give thanks for what you're going to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen, and amen. Thank you. God bless you as you go this morning. In the hearts of His people, God still moves, does not sleep, nor does He Does not.